This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us for the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls. Our guest here today is R. Kent Newmeyer, a professor of law and history at the University of Connecticut School of Law. He is the author of The Treason Trial of Aaron Burr, Law, Politics, and the Character Wars of the New Nation. Kent, most people are only familiar with Aaron Burr as the duelist who killed Alexander Hamilton. Can you give us a little more background information on Burr and his relationship with Thomas Jefferson? Well, Burr's a strange and tragic t- career, I guess, is the immediate background of the the treason trial uh, in Richmond, Virginia, in 1807. Burr, of course, was a powerful political figure in New York politics in the in the 1790s, and he was a strong Jeffersonian. As a matter of fact, he was Jefferson's lieutenant on the New York scene, and what what Burr did was to deliver New York's electoral vote in the election of 1800, which put Thomas Jefferson in the, in the presidency. Uh, and because Burr delivered the crucial vote, Burr got a place on the presidential ticket. The problem was, in that famous disputed election, was that the, the votes in the electoral college were tied, 73 to 73, Pretty much everybody understood that Jefferson was supposed to be president and Burr was supposed to be vice president. But remember, this was before the Twelfth Amendment, where where votes were cast separately for the president and the vice president. The assumption was here that the person who got the largest number of of votes would be president, and the second largest number of votes in the Electoral College would be vice president. But there was a tie, and the the vote went to the House of Representatives, as the Constitution provided, and the the voting went on for for weeks, and it it took 38 ballots to settle it in in favor of Jefferson. The problem is, however, that, that Burr did not withdraw publicly from contention for the presidency. Uh, Jefferson thought that he was trying to play a, a deceitful game of backroom politics and become president. In fact, Burr wasn't advocating for the presidency, but he also didn't withdraw. So it was the beginning of this personal hatred between these two guys. But So here what you have then is an anomaly because Burr ends up being Jefferson's vice president. And, and so you have the beginning of this kind of political impasse and, and of course, the beginning of a of a rank political hatred. So for four years, Burr served as vice president, and the records say that he actually was a very effective vice president. But Jefferson really never forgave him and did pretty much everything to neutralize his influence and, and perhaps even to drive him out of, of the party. And then, of course, on top of Burr's other difficulties, as you pointed out, he uh, ended up in this duel with Alexander Hamilton in the in the summer of 1804, killing Hamilton. And so, all of a sudden, Burr, who was a promising, uh, brilliant lawyer, uh, effective politician, former vice president, was a pariah. He was he really, literally, a man without a country, so to speak. And so, what he did to recover his honor and his fortune, uh, 
was to go west, and I guess that's what a lot of people did. And so Burr in 1805 and 1806 goes out to the western country, Ohio, down the Ohio River, down the Mississippi River, filibustering. And this led, of course, ultimately to the to Jefferson's firm belief that he he was trying that Burr was trying to separate the western states from the Union. Uh, that, of course, is a great dispute. What Burr was trying to do, whether he was trying to filibuster against the Spanish in Mexico, which seems most scholars seem to think this is really what he was up to. But Burr also talked a, a lot of hot air when he was out there, you know, canvassing the Western opinion, which led Jefferson to to think that he was actually uh, involved in a, tr- a treasonable plot. When you can't talk about the treason trial without mentioning one of the strangest characters in here, uh, James Wilkinson. You say scoundrels have their uses, and Wilkinson was the president's scoundrel. You know, of all of the colorful figures, and there really there are many colorful figures in the trial. Wilkinson's got to be one of the one of the most uh, in, intriguing figures. I mean, hey, he was the general of the army and the governor of the uh, Louisiana Territory, so he was a man to reckon with. Uh, he and a possible a, conspiracist with Aaron Burr. That's right. He, he and Burr were, were co-conspirators in whatever it was that was going on down there. But what happened was that Burr's loud talk and uh, inappropriate behavior in 1805 and 1806 scared Wilkinson because Wilkinson said, look, this guy is, you know, is talking off the cuff. He's behaving as if he were a traitor. Uh, whether he was or not didn't make any difference. And so what Wilkinson tried to do was to distance himself from Burr. And in order to do this, he wrote this letter to Jefferson, this famous cipher letter, as it's sometimes called. Wilkinson didn't write the letter, but he presented this letter as evidence. He translated it and then conveniently did not display the original. That's right. It, it was essentially a, a this is this is a long story about this the famous cipher letter, but uh, it was it was once thought that it was written by Burr, and of course this is what Wilkinson said. It, it was a letter, presumably allegedly written by Burr to Wilkinson in a secret code, which Wilkinson then uh, deciphered, and he sent his own version of this cipher letter to Jefferson and altered it to take himself out of the picture, but also to convince Jefferson that, yes, Burr was raising an army in the West, and he was going to separate, attack New Orleans, separate the Western states from a union, and then go on to attack the Spanish in Mexico. And it was on the basis of, largely on the basis of this letter, that Jefferson did the most, one of the most remarkable things in this whole episode. Uh, January 22nd, uh, 1807, he addressed Congress, and he declared Aaron Burr to be guilty of treason. Remember now, Burr had not been indicted by a grand jury. Of course, he had not, not been tried. He was still floating down a river in Ohio, as far as I know. Right. He, you know, he was he 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 didn't know anything about this yet. So, I mean, of course. One of the problems with this, with this whole thing is, of course, the communication problem because there were uh, literally weeks uh, where there, people didn't know what was going on. Is there, is there going to be a war uh, with Spain in the southwest? Well, there, you know, this is, this is the great mystery because if there were going to be a war, 
between the United States and Spain over disputed territory in the Southwest. And if Burr was raising a private army in case of war, that's, that's legal. And that's what Burr claimed he was doing. But he was raising a private army, and there was no war. And one or two things. If he attacked American territory in New Orleans, that would be a felony. It was in violation of the Neutrality Act of 1794 because we were at peace nominally with Spain. And that would have, that would have been a high misdemeanor. If, in fact, he had further designs on a secession, a separation of the Union, of course, that would be treason. What happened, of course, is, is that Jefferson accused him of treason. And, of course, this, this sets the stage for this great trial in Richmond, which, which pits not only Burr and Jefferson, but brings in Jefferson's old nemesis. John From Marbury versus Madison. Right. Because, and here, I mean, here's the anomaly in this whole thing, because here is Marshall, Chief Justice of the United States, but at this period in American legal history, justices of the Supreme Court rode circuit. In fact, they spent more time riding circuit in their own circuits than they did meeting together as, as, a, as a court in Washington. And when they're on circuit, they're serving as trial judges. And they sat, Marshall sat nominally with Cyrus Griffin is the guy's name in, in Richmond, but it was really Marshall who was in charge of the trial. So Marshall is Supreme, you know, he's, he's Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but he's also a trial judge, and he's dealing with all the details of jury selection and uh, and technical arguments about trials, and and there's no place to hide. I mean. At Washington, of course, he can always say, well, this is a, and he did say, these are collect, even when he wrote the opinion, this is a collective opinion of the court. In Richmond, he, he was on the firing line, and of course, all of his critics were focused on what he did, what he said, and so here, here's the final layout there. So, Burr's on trial for his life. He's, he's indicted for both high misdemeanor and treason. The interesting thing about all this is that Thomas Jefferson takes personal charge of the prosecution. And one of the amazing things was for all these letters that, that Jefferson, sitting in the White House, wrote to the federal attorney, George Hay, in Richmond, instructing Hay on how to conduct the trial, how to interrogate witnesses. Well, Jefferson even sent a set of blank pardons to Hay instructing him to use these pardons to elicit testimony against Burr. I mean, it was it was really <laughs> unparalleled, really, in, Amer in American history. And, of course, this became well-known, and Burr's lawyers dramatized this because this was, of course, going to be their chief defense. The President of the United States is out to get Burr a personal vendetta, which, hey, maybe it was. So what you got is Burr, Marshall and Jefferson, all with personal antagonisms in, in full bloom, fighting it out in Marshall Circuit courtroom. And of course, Burr was the lead counsel because he was a great trial lawyer, and uh, he had on his side some of the best lawyers in the country. So altogether, you have this seven months trial, which goes on in Richmond which was covered in the, in the National Partisan Press, 
Uh, I was going to say, it sounds flip to say it was the O.J. Simpson trial of the 19th century because, you know, it was much more significant than the O.J. Simpson trial, but it was a national media event, uh, put it that way, and uh, highly politicized uh, episode. So this this is the sort of background of this. And, and don't forget, of course, that Marshall and Jefferson had already crossed swords. You mentioned uh, Marbury versus Madison. And even back into Virginia in the 1790s, Marshall was the lead Federalist. And, of course, Jefferson was, you know, the, the guiding genius of his new party. So uh, states' rights, uh, Democratic Party, and so on. So Marshall and Jefferson hated one another. Jefferson and Burr hated one another. And so there was this incredible tension. Uh, so that makes for... Uh, I guess what one uh, contemporary guy said called it the melodrama, which has taken place in in the Richmond courtroom. So, so there you have it. That was the setting uh, of the trial. One of the things I think I do in my book that other people have written about this is is to give due credit to the lawyers because, um, in in some ways, it's really their show. We have you know a thousand pages of stenographic transcripts, uh, and what what these what these lawyers what the I mean hey. There were nine lawyers who made their appearance. Not all of them are great. Some of them are a little bit embarrassing. And one of them is very confusingly named, Luther Martin. Yeah, that could, that could cause endless confusion. But hey, he was he was one of the great. He was he was one of the most dramatic of a dramatic group. Um, old brandy bottle, Luther Martin. But he you know he was also called Old Law Ledger because he had a photographic memory. But uh, of course, he was on Burr's defense team, and uh, he hated Jefferson. He loved Burr, and he might have been in love with Burr's daughter, Theodosia. I mean, there's a, a lot of rumors about that. But but he was formidable, and uh, William Wirt, also Burr's defense lawyer, was was one of the great lawyers in the country, although people don't hear much about him. And, and John Wickham. John Wickham was very interesting. Oh, Wickham. Hey, that yeah. Wickham was, was the guy I was referring to. Uh, certainly, you know, probably the greatest lawyer in Virginia. Everybody said so. And the the, the guy who was competing against him was, was another Virginia lawyer, uh, William Wirt. And Wirt was the government mainstay. I mean, the federal attorney in Richmond, George Hay, was a little bit uh, over his head in the case. But, but Wirt was brilliant. And so you have a collision of, of Wickham and Martin and, and Wirt. And, I mean, the fireworks, and, you, you know, you read... The transcripts, and that's that's by the way how I got interested in the case. I just happened to be reading these transcripts. A friend of mine had one volume, I had the other volume, and we said, "What's going on here? How could how could these guys be so smart and so good and so brilliant?" So anyhow, that's uh, I felt that in, in the book that one of the things I should do is to somehow to give credit to the role of lawyers in the in the process of lawmaking, and, and what what you find here is that the lawyers permitted Marshall to uh, grapple with these issues because hey, Marshall couldn't be, be expected to know all this stuff. And he was not, he was a great common lawyer, but he was not a great legal scholar. So the lawyers are really educating him. They're cherry picking the law. Marshall gets to cherry pick their arguments to put his own uh, stamp on American treason law, which he did. So, uh, and that's the lawmaking process, which, which I'll talk about, I guess, in this little excerpt I 
I read later on. But that's that's what's going on. But it's the fireworks, the drama, the personal aspects of the thing, which I think make it absolutely compelling kind of a courtroom drama. I agree. Would you like to read your excerpt for us now? Well, okay, I'll I'll do my best here to to uh, read it. And this this is a little excerpt from uh, from the epilogue of the book, and uh, which deals with a lot of things. I mean, it deals with Byrd, deals with Jefferson, but this this kind of focuses on uh, Marshall and the lawyers, which is what I've just been talking about. Uh, so here, here goes here. It says the role of Marshall. And the lawyers in the Burr trial also contains lessons for historians seeking to understand the dynamics of early 19th century legal culture in the United States. What we see in the Burr treason trial, what helps account for the fireworks and the chaos as well as the constructive outcome of the trial, was the collision of English legal doctrine nurtured over centuries of monarchical government against the living needs of the new nation. For all the talk about Republican law, English common law institutions, principles, and terminology permeated every aspect of the proceedings. At times it appeared as if the common law tradition itself, with with due process and the rule of the law at its core, was on the line. At the same time, however, and no less important than the English legal legacy in the Byrd trial, was the freewheeling, pragmatic, non-ideological willingness of counsel on both sides to pick at will from English precedents and to modify what they chose as it suited their needs. Marshall may have put his own imprimatur on American treason law, but nine lawyers arguing strenuously and at times brilliantly for seven months showed him the way. Their joint effort provided a civics lesson for the thousands who followed the trial, even those who complained of the outcome. In short, the Burt trial affords historians a unique glimpse of judicial lawmaking in the the young republic at a time when legal institutions and legal doctrine were nearly as unsettled as the American Southwest that activated Burr's restless mind. The legal arguments and techniques of adjudication in Marshall's courtroom were also in flux, at once deeply rooted in English soil, but also pointing to the time when American law and lawmakers would stand on native ground. In a sense, Marshall himself exemplifies the transitional nature of the moment. Only five years into his job, the Chief Justice still had one foot in the 18th century, which is to say that his judging was a work in progress. His main opinion in the Bird Trial, in fact, seems closer to Marbury, where he spent several pages expounding on the ancient writ writ of Mandamus and ended up borrowing Blackstone's tenth rule of statutory construction to rationalize judicial review, then to his bold expositions of American constitutional law in McCulloch or Gibbons. As a full-time professional who made a living from the law and made law his life's work, Marshall looked to the future, but he was also an 18th century common lawyer before he became the great expounder of the Constitution. And he was also a natural-born member of Virginia's ruling elite, who approached his work on the bench as a matter of public service. During the trial, the sense of noblesse oblige translated readily into his deeply held and frequently stated belief in judicial duty, the same that led him to stand firm against the pressure of public opinion and the threats of impeachment emanating from the White House. That is a little excerpt of what I was trying to argue. Well, that's wonderful. Thanks so much for talking with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Lee. 
This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.